Hello, and welcome to Freudian Flex. I'm your host, Sonia Freeman, and our guest today is Dr. Peggy Warren. Peggy Warren is an MD, adult psychiatrist, and psychoanalyst in Boston. She has had her own private practice for 33 years. She trained at Harvard at Mass General Hospital in psychiatry and the Boston Psychoanalytic Institute in psychoanalysis. She also taught the resident physicians in psychiatry at the Harvard Mass General Hospital McLean residency for 33 years and taught the psychoanalytic trainees at the Boston Psychoanalytic Institute. Thank you for listening in and please welcome Dr. Peggy Warren. So hello and welcome. Thanks for having Dr. me. Dr. Warren. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. This is going to be fun. Thank you. I think it's going to be great. I'm so excited that you showed up and here we are. Me too. <laughs> so um, I wanted to start just by asking you why you chose psychoanalysis and how you got involved. Kind of tell us a little bit about your path. Uh, I think actually I was always thinking psychoanalytically since I was maybe a child mm -hmm. because I was always interested in you know, reading biographies as a child, I was interested in what made people tick. And then I was an English major in college, sort of with the same bent, very interested in the character development in novels, um, how people interacted in the novels, what was the narrative arc of the novel, and why was it like that, usually because of how people were interacting. But how people were put together and how they affected each other was really kind of a lifelong interest. Mm. So when I went to medical school, I really was very taken with psychiatry, but I kind of knew ahead of time I would probably end up as a psychiatrist, even though I liked other facets of medicine. But the getting to know the patient and trying to dissect and understand how somebody views their world how the world has affected them, to me, was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And the context is it's based on a relationship between either the physician and the patient, the analyst and the patient, whatever you want to call it. So psychoanalysis was a very natural sort of outgrowth for me as a psychiatrist because delving much more into the unconscious and the dynamics that drove people was exactly what I was really interested in doing and had some sense um, intuitively about the patients as far as what they were struggling with. Mm -hmm. There were usually unconscious forces. Mm -hmm. Do you think that part of the draw of analysis was um, a curiosity about why you personally behave the way that you do? I think it's very, very much mixed in, I think, for all of us. Mm -hmm. um, and I was in analysis myself before medical school. And so that started me thinking about what, like, a psychoanalytic treatment can do. Plus the fact you have an identification many times with your analyst for a while. Um, but I think always the self part is is mixed in the the thing that's the challenge over time is to separate oneself from the patient and make sure you're not utilizing the patient for your own needs or to solve something in yourself but the general study in a way of humanity always affects i think personally how you feel about yourself or putting your own story together mm. Oh, Dr. Warren, I feel like I could talk with you about just that for the entire rest of the episode. And I, I left out <laughs> that this is a lifetime project. I believe it. Yeah, I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> it's a constant, <laughs> a constant I'm process. I'm hoping after 33 years I make a little more progress. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Every day. I mean, that's part of the beauty of it, though. Yes. That it's ever-evolving yes. like that. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so today the specific topic um, that I wanted to talk about with you um, is kind of the performance and exhibitionist aspect of social media, 
specifically Instagram and like maybe a little Facebook. Uh, what I kind of have here for you are some um, some things I came across, quotes, thoughts, things my friends said, uh, stuff I saw on TV, um, just things that I think shed some light on some of my own personal curiosities about why we use Instagram and how it affects us. So one of the things that I heard recently on the Girls Gotta Eat podcast um, was two, they were chatting about Instagram and Raina, who's one of the girls, said today everyone is their own PR agent and Ashley, who's the other um, host, followed it up by saying, yeah, like everyone's posting their highlight reel. And the idea of posting a highlight reel to be your own PR agent sounds pretty miserable. So much extra work that's unnecessary. So I'm wondering, just for starters, like getting out of the gates on this topic, what do you think we actually like about using Instagram? And what have you seen in your practice that makes you think that? It's a really interesting topic because this is this is the fascinating part about having been both a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst for a long time. Because you also see how the culture changes, how people's the context of people's lives basically change. Mm -hmm. So you know, when I started practicing, there there was no internet, and right. there was no Instagram, and there was no Facebook, and there there were no cell phones, mm -hmm. which, by the way, is a whole other issue. But so people would then be more language-based in a way. They would be describing what they saw, heard, or whatever, or thought about somebody else's life. Then, as the internet crept into all the treatments— um, and Instagram, which is very potent, I've learned, made, made its arrival. Um, it served a lot of purposes, and they're different, I think, for every person. And I think it's usually based on, you know, what the vulnerabilities are mm. in, in whomever is speaking about it. But there is a voyeuristic quality that I think somehow engages a lot of people. And there's, I think, this other... Thing that Instagram does that it um, capitalizes, I think, on a more unconscious kind of fantasy that I think is sort of part of the human, the human condition, which is to want to have a better or perfect life, mm. which is on Instagram because everything looks great. And then it also seems to feed into this really competitive sort of streak about thinking that somebody else has more, somebody else has it better, mm -hmm. um, wanting that or striving for that or feeling like they'll never have that. Hmm. And it, it then becomes this like self-fulfilling prophecy of feeling failed yeah, um, or deprived. And the thing that I, I think is very difficult to kind of swallow, and this may be more about my generation, is kind of the sort of shameless like self-promotion mm -hmm. that Instagram seems to be, because the underlying premise, I think the more unconscious premise is, my life is really fascinating and everybody wants to see it. Mm. It's like that kind of narcissism, which I don't know if that's really true, but you would sort of have to feel like that if you're showing how perfect your life is. So, and it's got to be perfect. Absolutely. Because people are usually not showing things that they're ashamed of. Yeah. Can you just explain, we're dealing here with exhibitionism, voyeurism, and narcissism. Can you just explain from the psychoanalytic standpoint what those things are? Well, in terms of Instagram... I think it is more specific. Yeah. But um, the exhibitionistic part is is kind of this um, pleasure and many times aggression in showing oneself and showing oneself in a public way and wanting to do that or being gratified by doing that. Um, 
even if others may not want to see. That's sort of the aggressive part. The narcissistic part is, you know, the sense, I think, of feeling special and wanting the world to know about that, feeling grandiose in a way. Mm. And, of course, the flip side of that is feeling inadequate, which people with, you know, narcissistic problems struggle with. Mm. They struggle with the more unconscious part of feeling inadequate. And the defensive part and the part that seems to peek out the most consciously is the grandiose part, Mm -hmm. the part that makes it look perfect. The voyeuristic part, I think, is actually very complicated. I think there is a human wish to see. It's like a human curiosity to see, to see others, to look. It has, you know, if you're like, if you're a more classical analyst, it has its um, origins more unconsciously in the child that wants to see what's going on behind the parent's door or their sexual life or whatever. So you can make a whole case for that. Mm. But the Instagram, I think, really stimulates uh, a, sort of these basic voyeuristic wishes that maybe we all have, um, and maybe some of us have problems with it, so it's more intense. Mm. But whatever it is, Instagram is very stimulating for that. It is gratifying the wish to see, Hmm. to look at this curated life. So what is your opinion about people, particularly famous people, who kind of reject that premise and use Instagram as a megaphone for being against Instagram, kind of. Like, an example of it would be Amy Schumer just gave birth and had hyperemesis gravidarum the whole time, so she was violently vomiting forever. And she, rather than kind of backing off and, like, living out this difficult part of her life in private, she completely exhibited it for the world to see. So we're talking like, it's not just like, oh, she was on her story talking about how hard it is. She was posting permanent posts that are just videos of her running out of the car door to throw up. And the video is of her vomiting on the side of the street. What do you think about that type of way of, like that type of response to what you're talking about? Well, I think with her... This is a little bit part of her um, gestalt as a comedian and mm-hmm. as a writer. It's like she really pushes the boundaries. Uh, uh, nothing is off the table with her. That's part of her humor. Right. So this wouldn't be surprising, actually, if you think about who she is, that she would do this. But But there's also this piece where it can feel like it's too much that's revealed or it's in your face, in an aggressive way. Um, but again, I think this is a little bit part of who she is, so it's a little bit consistent with that. I mean, she also does stand up and talks about marrying uh, a man who has Asperger's. Yeah. Um, the man who always tells the truth mm-hmm. to her mm-hmm. because he can't really shade it with anything more subtle. So, What I th- do you make of that? I think... I think, first of all, her life is her material, which is probably true for most people um, doing stand-up. Right. And I actually, at least the little I heard, she seems to like it. Yeah. She loves this in him, which in a way was sort of refreshing Mm -hmm. because uh, the Asperger issue is so much now in the news. and It always has kind of a negative cast. Mm -hmm. So that, that was actually kind of refreshing. But I think her... Vomiting in the street and talking about all this would be consistent with her Instagram, her movies of her life. This is kind of who she is. It sounds like with the pregnancy, it was her wish to, quote, tell the truth Mm. and not clean it up. Mm. But there's this underlying question, okay, but, but why do we have to see this? Yeah. Or what is the assumption that everybody wants to know about this? And P.S., a lot of people have had this as a pregnant person. Right. So it's not like she invented it. Right. So, <laughs> so 
what is the the more subtle meaning yeah. of it? Like, as if everyone's waiting to see or be taught about this from Amy Schumer. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about whether analytic theory gives us clues into the specifics of whether we like using Instagram because of because it gives us self-satisfaction or do we like it because it allows us to market ourselves to others in an appealing way? I think Instagram somehow, and it's hard to generalize because again, I think the use of it, the making of it, the viewing of it has very personal meanings to each person. I think that usually falls a lot into the narcissistic realm. So there's this way that reality always intervenes as you're growing and then sort of redefining continually, you know, your sense of self, which is in essence tied to your own sense of healthy narcissism. Healthy narcissism would feel like I can go to medical school. I think I have something to contribute. I'll have to work hard, but I think I can do it. Mm -hmm. You need that in life. When it gets more pathologic, It's as if deep down you feel very inadequate and need to keep exhibiting yourself, telling the world that you're very special, feeling grandiose, and expecting in an entitled way to be treated like that. Mm. Do you think that it's a completely negative, like, do you think that it only has negative effects? I don't know. Users. Yeah, I don't know. Can you think of any anything you've seen clinically that's um, been evidence for a positive effect of social media? No. <laughs> How's that? No. <laughs> no. No, I've seen it as an instrument of hmm. people torturing themselves with it. Okay. And and the it took me a long time to understand in the more millennial generation. And by the way, even older than that, that Facebook and Instagram was a whole form of um, communication and sort of like working through something potentially that had happened. You hear about a lot about breakups. Yeah. And people following like, well, what happened to their ex, Mm -hmm. which they can kind of figure out. Mm -hmm. And then there's the whole issue of being unfriended. So, so it's this other piece, you know, that's been relatively newer in the last decade in my work about understanding that, that it's not that somebody can just talk about, I had a breakup, I'm upset about it. It can now be, I'm upset about it, and I know what my ex is doing, and I guess he got a different person right away, mm. but I didn't. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a really, I think, really complicated, something very toxic at times, Mm. instrument. What do you think about, so I was talking about it with my sister a little, and she was saying that when she's feeling great, she doesn't feel the need to be on social media at all because she's just happy in her own happiness. But when she's feeling low, it really feels like a Mm pick-me-up to, like, post something that's, like, you know, a previous picture of when she was having fun or, like, to look at previous versions of herself that were not feeling low. Why do you think that is? Well, that would have been akin, I think, to the older generation of looking through photos Mm. that were happy memories. And which, by the way, this this might be one of the positive parts of Mm -hmm. this. I think the other positive part, by the way, that I really observed that I think is very moving about Facebook and all is how people make connections with other people from their past or they organize people in the present as a group to do something, be together, whatever. Yeah. That part, I think, is really lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't hear about that a lot, but mm-hmm. it's there. But I think it sounds like your sister's use of this is it's soothing. Yes, but why? Why is it soothing? Because I think it rem- maybe it reminds her of happy memories when she's not feeling so great at the moment. But why does posting a picture of a happy memory while you are feeling low help you feel better in that moment? Well, that's a really, really good question. I don't know if it feels like she's connecting with others 
and showing them, or it's validating in some way that this really was a happy memory and giving her hope deep down that it'll happen again. Mm. It's also maybe a way of posting of not feeling as alone at that moment. Why does it help with because that? Because it's, it's, in essence, talking to others. Okay. But this, I think, is the tension with something like Instagram. It's like, quote, talking to others, but it isn't because mm-hmm. they're not in the room or you're not hearing their voice yeah. or you're not calling them on the phone. So it's a fantasied connection. And so one of the questions I've had now as a psychoanalyst for a long time is, with the fantasied connection to others, is it really a connection? Or a fantasy of being with people. Can you can you describe what that fantasy connection actually is? Are you talking about liking someone's photo, like an old friend likes your photos? It could be that. It could be what your sister's saying, just posting something. If for her, and I don't know, uh-huh. and this is what you would explore in a treatment. You know, what is the meaning of the posting? That's a big part of the work in analysis trying to follow somebody's associations, first of all, around whatever they're talking about to see if you can slowly put the story together more about the deeper meaning to Uh this or the roots of it, but also exploring a lot, asking questions, trying to understand what is the meaning of posting. We know she likes to post, and it feels good, Uh but we don't really know why. So if this were in analysis, you would be trying to find out over time both exploring and listening a lot about what is it that encases this whole piece of action yeah. that makes her feel better, that's specific to her. Can you give us an example of a a question you might ask to elicit that kind of information? Like, where would you even start? I think I'd start with asking her to tell me more about why this feels good and what it's like and have her describe it more. And I'd be listening to how she associated to it. And, I mean, you know, in associations, people can— Yeah, what does that mean? Well, in other words, letting someone talk and not interrupting and seeing where their thoughts go, which is part of analytic technique. In other words, not interrupting somebody or getting— into their space in a way, but literally stepping out of it and listening as an observer where they're going with this. You know, because somebody might say, I feel good putting this photo up, and it reminds me of something I used to do as a kid, and I would look at pictures with my mother, and we'd laugh. In other words, it would begin to take shape Uh about why this might feel good A lot of times it has to do with remembering a pleasure in a relationship with maybe someone who was loved or pleasure in doing something that felt important Mm. in some way going way back. But you you don't know where it leads as an analyst. You have no idea. Why would finding that information be helpful to your patient? Because I think in the end besides trying to get to know somebody and trying to get a more cohesive picture of them, you're also trying to find out where the pain is and what are the defenses and what have been the disruptions in their development because of all sorts of things, trauma, illness, loss, that have then remolded them at that point Mm. and maybe changed the course of their growth or not. We don't know. Um, But in the end, you're trying to find out where the pain is. You're trying to understand what was the psychic way that this was handled, the pain. Because I have come to believe that analytic work has a lot to do with helping someone unearth these things and be able to bear, usually with somebody else, like the analyst, things that may have felt unbearable mm-hmm. in one's life. And sometimes it can be worked through, and sometimes it's just bearing witness 
to pain. And sometimes it feels like it's a lot of clarifying so that somebody can understand, oh, that's why I can't do X. Mm. It reminds me of Y. And I had a hard, hard time with that. So it's a very intimate relationship where you're really getting to know someone in a profoundly in-depth way. So it's like remodeling how they deal with pain when they experience it? Maybe. Maybe. You never really know how it's going to go. Uh-huh. The remodeling would be because, and that's a bad word, by the way. But <laughs> did I make that up or no, did I get that I from did. you? Oh. I did. That. I mean, I'm trying to make this understandable. Um, because there's, there is a way that if people can begin to understand the more unconscious pieces of what drives them, it does help them understand themselves better, and it can change behavior. Mm-hmm. This might be what could be the remodel part, but that's that's very long work. Yes, and it's also analyzing somebody's defenses that are, you know, usually defenses are mobilized to ward off unbearable feelings mm-hmm. or unbearable memories. Getting through an understanding and under somebody's defenses mm-hmm. is no small task. Yeah. Of course. Because that's a survival mechanism, defenses. So that's that's not easy work. Mm -hmm. So my favorite contestant on the Bachelor, Bachelorette franchise ever, Caitlin Bristow, has a podcast that's called Off the Vine, where she essentially just drinks wine with her friends and talks. And like she said, it's a fantasy world connecting on social media. So can you talk a little bit about the dreamlike fantasy world quality of Instagram? Well, that's, it's an interesting question because I'm not sure that every viewer of Instagram views it as a dreamlike quality. Mm. It seems like they view it both as reality and also kind of know, well, maybe it's not. And so the dreamlike part would have to be sort of this, like, idealized life that looks very perfect or where every detail that's on Instagram, the implication is everybody wants to know what my kid had for lunch or that I went to a great restaurant or is so interested in every part of my life. So it must feel to some people like it's kind of a dream-like thing that you would fantasize and then it's, it's in the pictures. But I think also there's people that must feel like, no, this is real. This is what somebody's life is like. They're always on vacation. They go to great restaurants. They have fabulous friends. Everyone's laughing and having a great time. What's wrong with me? Yeah. So I don't know if the dreamlike part is the pervasive experience of it. It might be. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. What do you think? There are people... Sometimes friends, sometimes just uh, people I've met, sometimes people who are known as like influencers, people who are really good at working out, or just people who have vibrant personalities that are contagious. Mm -hmm. The one example I would really give for someone whose Instagram just feels good to look at. I elect to follow her because watching her and watching what her, she doesn't have, she has daughters, but watching what her kid ate for breakfast with her commentary on it is funny and like fun and makes me feel good. I would say like Kristen Bell's Instagram is inordinately genuine. She's barely ever wearing makeup. She's, you know, just like doing weird things and talking about weird things. She also is a she's a strong advocate for a lot of different charities. So, so it feels good because she's real. Yeah, it feels real. It feels real, yeah. and it also feels they're very open with the fact that when they started dating, they went almost immediately into couples therapy. They are two very different people, and when you hear them talk, it's clear that they have had to work to come to a point where they're able to kind of simultaneously argue and be in love at the same time. So this would feel very hopeful. Yeah. To see real people 
who have struggled and come to some place that feels better. That would be very inspiring, I would think. But but a real message of hope that people can struggle through things and make it. Mm. That would be very, I think, um, pleasurable, but also very potent. You'd want to watch this. You'd want to learn from it mm. or identify with it. Mm-hmm. So that part is not dreamlike. That's a uh, sounds like a pretty reality based. Interesting. And that yeah. feels better. Yeah. They feel real and they overcame yes. in some way things that were difficult, which would be very affirming, I think, that life can go on or yeah. work out or improve. Mm. That would be pretty potent. Yeah. What do you think about um uh weddings and engagements today and the type of photography and videography and you know the fairy tale fantasy look of it all what do you think about that it feels many times very staged mm-hmm. or as if it's supposed to be like this like you have to have an engagement photo and like there's a there's a protocol yeah then my parents were talking about this the other day that they were like we proposed like it was like a quiet night at home and we were just like do you want to do the thing we were planning on doing sure no then (laughs) call the photographer now I mean, like, there's, it almost feels like there's a protocol, there's the website for the couple. Um, it it doesn't feel too intimate or, in a way, spontaneous, but, okay, this is how it's going. Um, I also think it depends on the couple. I think if the, cup, if, if the couple's really known to you yeah. or they feel like kind of real people, I think that context affects how you look at all this, but there is something staged and um, predetermined in a way about what's supposed to be in the wedding package. Yeah. The photos, the websites. But but maybe this is the new world. I don't know. I yeah, I I wonder again, my question is like, what do you think the positives are of it? Because I think like Having maybe it's like you say that it's finding like within a bunch of pictures some genuine some things yeah. that felt genuine and then being able to look back on them in a hopeful way. Yes, yes, and remembering. Mm. And um, the wedding photo part, some of them are very beautiful. Yeah. Um, the the websites and all make it really easier for the guests and whatever. But I always feel like, but again, this is more me yeah. at this point in life. There's a, It always feels like there's this, there's this saying in surgery when I um, was a surgical intern for a while, uh, uh, the no-touch method in the OR where you don't want to contaminate anything, you don't want to touch anything. So there's a way the internet and the wedding package or whatever can feel to me like the no-touch method. It's like very easy to get the gift, very easy to look at all the photos, just press this, press send, whatever. But it doesn't feel as intimate or Mm -hmm. like you can really touch it in a way and be Mm -hmm. closer. It's, it's, it could be on Amazon. And that's not really fair to say because yeah. a lot of these are very beautiful. Mm-hmm. But but that's because I didn't grow up with the internet, like your parents were saying. Yeah. Whereas I think it feels very differently to younger people yeah. who are used to that. It, it it's so interesting. Just the gen the idea that the positive that you get out of it in the con is is something in the context of hopefulness. I don't think I've ever thought about it that way before and And affirmation and the thing is the translation of this i think or the medium for this in your generation is on the internet Mm. and i don't think the internet feels like the no touch method yeah it's how you've been talking to each other for a lifetime Mm. so that's also one of the failings i think of my generation is to not empathically really 
understand that. Yeah. We sort of get it intellectually, but not really. Because if we wanted to be with each other or talk to each other, we had to see each other or call each other Mm -hmm. or be physically together. Do you think that my generation does less of that? I actually don't. I actually think your generation does both. Okay. That that part That's I found very impressive. <laughs> no, I think the people that have real friends can amplify it by what how they can reach people using the internet uh-huh. and see them. I don't know if that's true for everybody, but but for someone with real friends, it would be really lovely because mm. you could get a lot of people together quickly. Yeah. How do you think control plays into this? Like when you're talking about those different aspects, how do you think, do you think that someone who likes to be in control, who has more anxiety about maybe kind of floating in the breeze, being like more laissez-faire and kind of letting life happen, do you think that a person like that is more likely to be drawn to Instagram or less? Well, I think if you want to regulate things or control things, a lot of the internet would be very appealing because you can control, regulate, create whatever, the image you want to project, the person you are, your life. You're in total control. It's almost like being a fiction writer. Right. You're in total control of the characters, the narrative arc, the ending. Yes. Um, I think if you want to let life happen to you, I don't know how people would feel then about Facebook or Instagram. Um, They also could enjoy it because they can create something and not let life happen to them. And it could feel good Mm. as a way to practice being another way, even though it's not really them. But I don't know, because I think this is so private. Yeah. One's experience of this. Mm -hmm. On the dating sites where you have to make a profile and basically sum up who you are. Yeah. You have to choreograph it in one page. I think that's somewhere in the ballpark of what we're talking about as well. Uh That's sort of creating, or if you're a writer, creating the character that you want the world to see or read or date. Yeah. Um, and you're totally controlling it. You can't control who might reply, Mm -hmm. but you are creating this image. I think if life just happens to you, that either could be appealing because it's becoming like a fiction writer, or it could be a little frightening, Mm -hmm. too, because someone could feel like, what do I say? How do I describe myself? Yeah. I, I don't know where to go with this. I'm used to describing myself by what people tell me mm-hmm. about myself. Hmm. Do you think that from what you've seen in your patients, do you think that looking back on the controlled environment of Instagram is more motivating in a time of duress? is looking back on the controlled environment of Instagram that you yourself have controlled more demoralizing or more motivating? I think this is not just about Instagram. I mean, people under duress have certain things they need to do or ways to soothe themselves um, and will utilize whatever more if it's soothing and less if it's not. Instagram could be part of that or not. But um, again, I think it's really based on the formulation about how one person is put together and based on what then they would need Mm. if they were in pain or not. And Instagram could be integrated into that or not based on what is the experience, the felt experience for that person With Instagram, it sounds like it would be soothing, for instance, or helpful to you. Mm. You were saying, you know, if you felt down, it felt better. Mm. I did want to ask you about this other 
just kind of part of the Instagram world that I have always been curious about. Um, and it has a little bit more to do with development. I'm wondering, so since the type of feedback that you get on Instagram is nebulous in terms of whether it's positive or negative, and this is what I mean by that, you're either getting like a like and a comment or you're not getting a like and a comment, but you're never getting a dislike. You're basically well, getting... that's the absence of like. Yeah, you're getting a control instead of... You're getting like a neutral or a like. Well, it's also volume-based. Yes. A lot of likes. Right. Or none or right. little. So the positive, like the positive feedback from Instagram is I got a lot of likes. And the negative feedback of Instagram is I didn't get enough of that, which is like a weird... I don't know. It's you see what I mean by nebulous that it's not exactly like a yes or a no or one or a zero. And it, you know, how many likes makes this person happy as opposed to how many likes makes another person happy? And And also what does a like or not getting a like mean? Yeah. Well, tell me what you think about that. I think again this is actually very confusing because <laughs> not getting likes you don't really know what that means. You don't uh -huh. know if maybe people didn't even look. Right. Or it doesn't appeal to them or they don't understand it. Right. Or they didn't pick up their phone and press like. Um, I mean, the comments are more illustrative, I think, of what people really think. Mm. But what I've heard the most about is the volume of likes. That that sends the message. That's the affirmation somehow or the validation and the lack thereof can feel very painful. So, but that's one instrument, I think, of Instagram. And there's also people, I think, that aren't counting the likes and who, don't care as much. Who do you think those people tend to be? I think people just wanting to share their pleasure. Mm. I think if you're looking for validation, the likes are really yeah. important and the number. Right the number do you think so how do you think the ability to be resilient is affected by this nebulous feedback mechanism from instagram it's a fascinating question mm. fascinating which i don't have an answer for but fascinating <laughs> because I've been fascinated by the issue of resilience my entire career, mm. my entire career. And it has seemed to me that some people are literally hardwired and born to be resilient and triumph after many times a life of terrible trauma. And you see this in treatments. But where does the resilience come from? really come from or yeah. what develops it or it has become to me something that's hardwired that's like there and if you're really careful in getting a history you really get to know someone you can see that it's been operative through someone's life mm -hmm. it may look more intense or florid or effective when someone let's say is in treatment and getting help or, or they marry someone great, or they have great friends, or whatever. Um, so the internet and Instagram has been very curious thought for me about what, what does it mean about resilience? Does it even affect it, or does it? And I'm not sure it does. But I could be totally wrong, and I'm guessing, because to me, what I've learned as a clinician this is just my thought, is that resilience is somehow has a life of its own and is always there if you just look for it. Mm -hmm. And then you can see it flourishing if it's in the right context. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it's affected by. Yeah. I'm not sure what Instagram or Facebook would do to it. This doesn't mean somebody with resilience can't get hurt. So getting no likes could still be very hurtful. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but someone with a lot of resilience would be wondering about that. Yeah. Or why do I care? Mm-hmm. Or what should I do with this? Or or maybe it doesn't matter. Or maybe it does. Yeah. Or it matters to me. But I still need to go on. Because this is the first episode of the podcast, I wanted to ask you about transference and counter-transference because it's such a linchpin of psychoanalysis. And first, I just want you to explain for the listeners what it is really in a, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to go too far into it, but like really what it is and how it affects care in psychoanalysis. And then also I'm curious about how one might experience transference and counter-transference in the context of social media, in the context of that type of discussion. Well, first of all, um, uh, transference, by the way, is part of life. But in analytic work, and actually in uh, in analytic psychotherapy, transference is basically the patient's unconscious memories, wishes, feelings, whatever, um, projected onto the analyst. And the transference part can feel very real to the patient and be believed and or unseen to the patient. Mm -hmm. So that's the part that in many ways has to be utilized and clarified and actually brought to consciousness. And, And transference is um, almost like using a microscope or a stethoscope or whatever in analytic work. It really can give you a laser focus into the unconscious and into one's history as well. So it's, it's also an instrument, in essence, being utilized in analytic technique. The counter-transference is the more unconscious feelings and response to the patient and their transference that is mobilized in the analyst, which is why we all have to get analyzed, because <laughs> you want to be aware of what your own counter-transferences could be like, your own areas of vulnerability, your, your own unconscious um, wishes, Just to clarify, traumas. what you mean is by we all need to get we, analyzed. We analysts. Yes. Well, actually, you I analysts. Take, no, yeah. actually, we, we clinicians, mm. I think anyone dealing in um, some sort of a psychotherapy with patients, this is, again, my own prejudice, should be analyzed. But it's a requirement, right, for... To be a psychoanalyst, yes. It's a requirement to get analyzed in order to be a psychoanalyst. Yes, but not in any other training. Yes, it could be encouraged. Right. But so, you know, if you're not aware of your counter-transference, you're kind of in trouble because you could then be acting something out with the patient or retaliating in some way and not knowing or misinterpreting the patient based on your own unconscious experience. Uh-huh. So the more you can know about your own unconscious, the better. Also, you need to know when you are experiencing a counter-transference because it can be invisible to the analyst if they don't really understand themselves. So that's that's problematic. What do you do when you're in a clinical scenario where you realize that you're experiencing counter-transference? Well, the counter-transference can be very, very useful clinically. Because if you understand the counter-transference you're having, it basically is in reference, in many ways, to the patient. And either what the patient is feeling or dredging up in you that they may have some resonance with. So it's a very, very important tool. All of these things are important tools. And if they're not understood or utilized, you can't deepen the treatment. You can't get under the surface more. Mm. with the patient, which is what you want to do. Mm. And um, there are also counter-transference states that can feel unusual 
let's say, to the analyst, which is very important to know because there are certain defenses coming from patients that would cause certain countertransferences, for instance, in the analyst, and beg for, in some way, acting it out with them. So you have to be aware that you're having that countertransference so you can step out of it, you can extricate yourself from it, and observe it, and understand then what the patient might be pulling for unconsciously that tells you more about them. So these are all very, very important tools, and they really do rise out of a lot of clinical experience in good supervision and one's own analysis. How do you stop yourself? Like if you are in a regular flowing conversation with a patient and you realize, like you said, that the situation begs for a counter-transference. Oh, begs for acting it out. Begs for acting it out. How do you, what do you do like when you're saying you remove yourself to observe, like what does that entail? You have to first know you're having the countertransference. Okay. And then you sort of have to be thinking very quickly about, you know, why am I having this? What is this? Where is it emanating from? What's it stirring up in me? And then, and by the way, this isn't all done in one session. This is slow work. Slow, mm. slow, slow. It could take you a month to figure this out. Wow. But then you know, the treatment goal would be, to, as the analyst, is to extricate yourself from this meaning, not to act it out with the patient, but to understand it, to see it, to be able to describe it, to be able to put it forth in a way to the patient to try to understand what function does this serve for the patient. There's a reason for it. It's usually a defense that's warding off the unbearable or something. But you would never get to that or understand what's unbearable if you first didn't get it, uh-huh. that you're having this kind of transference and you're feeling like you want to act something out, knowing it's emanating from the patient being provocative. Mm-hmm. And that's how you can dead end okay. in a way as an analyst. That you need to be analyzed. You have to understand yourself to understand a lot of what's happening then with the patient. Mm. Because you're hearing a lot, a lot that's very um, stimulating in the sense of serious, very uh, basic human pain, which resonates with all of us. Mm. And not acting it out with somebody is a very um, important issue because then you can't help somebody with it. But it takes a lot of experience, I think, a lot of maturity, and also understanding one's own vulnerabilities. Mm. I feel like often psychoanalysts go unappreciated for the amount of self-work that they do. Doing that type of work is hard, and I, I just, I feel like patients often don't realize when they're in psychoanalysis how much work the physician has put in on themselves. And I would imagine that that would be a really appealing piece of analysis that, I mean, it's not like the analyst can say to the patient, I put in a lot of work on myself. Like, it's one of the things that really sets analysis apart is the fact that the physician knows themselves so well. This actually should be true. For all clinicians out of doing, outside of psychotherapy, I mean, as an ER doctor, you have to be aware of your own internal world sometimes in order to help somebody or medicate them or talk to them about they might need surgery because you're really in need of knowing your own dynamics and the patients. And then you can help them. So we do have, you know, a deficit in our system about this. Um, because to be analyzed or be in treatment yourself is long and slow and expensive. And painful. It can be painful, but it can also be joyous. Mm. It's also uh, a living, breathing relationship. Mm. Uh, Growth feels very good, development. Um, There's a lot of very solid 
sort of bonded feelings that yeah. get going in a good treatment. Um, also, it can feel very transformative in one's life. So there's a lot of joy as well. It's not all pain. There is pain, but it's not all pain. But in our very fast-paced world now, this kind. This is why I think they think psychoanalysis in a way is a dinosaur, because it's slow, and it's detailed, and it doesn't conform really to how rapidly things move and are done in in the internet age or whatever. I think there's slowly more thinking in medicine about alerting physicians and trainees to, and I'm not talking about psychiatry, but everywhere, to the idea of empathy hmm. uh, as being very important to connect with the patient, um, that that's helpful. It's helpful as a doctor. So this gives me some hope because that's the tip of the iceberg of understanding oneself and the patient in a deeper way. Mm-hmm. Can you... Give me a sense of how you think transference and counter-transference might set you apart as an asset to someone who uses Instagram. If you are aware of your transferences, if you, if you could look at something, a post on Instagram and say... By you, do you mean a patient? A, a person. Okay, if a so person. So if you look at it and... In a, this is an example. I'm making it up. Yeah. And look at it and think, I, I hate this picture. Yes. If you're aware of your transferences, you could say to yourself, wait, why Why do I have an ins, you know, instantaneous dislike of this? What is this? It looks like a pretty picture. Why do I feel like that? You would then be thinking about, why do I have this trigger response? This is me. This has got to be me. And you'd be searching in a way to understand kind of your internal life about what did this just hit? And which, by the way, would affect if people like something or not, because it may well have to do with what transferences have been smoked out by looking at something. Right. Um, I think, though, that most people are not quite aware of that or quite aware of how they have transferences all the time in life. Like if you like someone, you meet someone, you like them right away, many times there's some transference that's already gotten, you know, sort of evoked and you may not know what it is. You just like them. And over time you may figure it out or not. And your counter-transference then would be to how they, they seem to feel or act about you. Like if if they're hesitant or whatever, you could have a very negative counter-transference, which is an old one, though, because you may have had sort of hesitant or hurtful people in your past. And so the hesitancy evokes that. But again, you'd have to be thinking about this. That's not so easy to discern. Mm. As far as the Instagram, though, I think the transference issue is probably pretty rampant. Or like the wedding pictures mm-hmm. or the wedding sites. People have a lot of reaction to that. Uh-huh. And many times it's very positive transference. Mm-hmm. You know, this is beautiful. Um, this reminds me of X, and this was very pleasurable. And I want to have this. It feels good. This is one of my fantasies. You know, it can unlock a whole sense of, a lot of positive, you know, more unconscious feelings about it. Same with negative. And why would being aware of that transference make someone more happy? I think it's more, it would make someone feel more solid. Yeah. And hopeful because they know themselves. Mm. And they know why Mm. they're having this positive feeling, positive transference or whatever. So they're not carried away by it in an idealization or whatever, but they're grounded. And that feels good. Mm-hmm. And it feels hopeful and affirming, like you know oneself. Yeah. That's a very, very potent feeling. 
Yeah. And it makes people feel like they can withstand what life dishes out mm-hmm. without losing a sense of self or crumbling. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah. a fascinating career. So fascinating. All right, Dr. Warren, this on is a that pleasure. Note, this was so wonderful. Thank you. I can't thank you enough. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for coming. And you have very, very interesting questions. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I, I think about them now for the next 30 years. I might be able to answer some. <laughs> we'll have you back on. Okay, And then years. you'll be able to answer more. Okay, I okay. love it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.